0: Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dimitri Kalygin. We have a great show for you this time. It's going to be a packed one because, boy, are things going off in all sorts of places around the world, theologically, on the military front, on the geoeconomic you know strategic shipping routes front you know all sorts of things are happening of course the red sea and israel will be one of our main focuses but there's big stuff going on in ukraine huge stuff going on on the home front here in the united states and of course vatican city a lot of things going on there as well so a pack show be sure to you know strap in because this one's going to be i don't know if it's going to be long but it's certainly going to be dense so dimitri how are you doing
1: Doing great, Conrad. And just as you've said, you know, the year is coming to an end and there's just things going on all around, right? So 2023, it's been a year of not just energy disruption, but as it seems, based on what's happening in the Red Sea and just near the Horn of Africa, near the Arabian Peninsula, it's a disruption of shipments. So shipments of goods we saw early in 2023, the huge agricultural issues occurring in the Black Sea with Ukraine, Russia, you know, uh, the grain deal falling through of Turkey, you know, sort of hints at a potential Russo-Turkish conflict again kind of subsiding and being put to the side at least for now frozen and at the moment what we're seeing is the Yemenis Houthis the, the the free people of Yemen again rising up and just like in the last few weeks we reported on this particular Houthi Islamic you know it's essentially a Liberation of Yemen movement. Who've you know these people have fought against Saudi Arabian oppression for decades at this point and successfully have resisted them. And you know we've spoken about how the Houthis are essentially a Hezbollah slash Hamas esque Yemeni's movement. And now they've suddenly begun threatening the Red Sh- Red Sea Straits towards the south uh, near the Gulf of Aden and have essentially prevented shipments from going through. And actually started threatening, saying that any ships linked to Israel, which they and you know, they said they have the capacity to actually find out which ships are either trading with Israel or carrying goods to Israel will be shot at from 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 Yemen itself by long range missiles or even taken over by as we've seen from some of the clips from earlier weeks you know they actually take over crews with helicopters assaulting these big ships and these ships are like gigantic right these are massive ships carrying goods from one side to the other side of the world so this particular strait and you know what was the response to it right the u.s you know the coalition israel's allies you can say it's almost like a nato operation but they've called it an international coalition has begun an operation in order to stop these Yemeni hoodies from preventing these shipments right and the operation is called operation prosperity guardian because they're you know, the shipments through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea need to be protected in order for the world to be prosperous and for the world to be defended. Let's set aside the fact that huge shipments out of Ukraine and Russia have been put you know, essentially at gi- giant risk. By, through the sanctions, through the you know instigation of the war, through the failure of both sides to achieve a peace treaty by meddling of the UK and the US, right? But so prosperity there wasn't very important. But here suddenly, because Israel is affected, suddenly Greece, Canada, the UK, the US suddenly sending warships back to the Middle East, just as like we saw during the Afghanistan and the Iraq wars, you know, sending American troops because uh, it is a mostly American operation in order to you know, I guess uphold the capitalistic world order. It's all very. It's all very pessimistic and quite scary. So the brave Houthis again are standing their ground, not just against Israel at this point, but against, but against these Western globalist leaders.
0: Yeah, the Yemenis or the Houthis—you can call them both, I guess. Houthis, I guess, slightly diminutive, because like we said before, they are like the government of Yemen. They control the capital. They control 95 percent of the population. They beat Saudi Arabia and their U.S. weapons in the war. So Yemen is their country. And yeah, Yahya Saraya, who's you know the main Houthi spokesperson. He's the guy that you always see in the videos yelling really loudly for the entire announcement in, like, the kind of weird monotone yell, you know, like, I give glory to God and the brave fighters of Yemen and Gaza, and here we are today, and we have decided to target every ship. Every ship going to Israel is now, like, you know, he says it in that way, and they've decided, yeah, every ship on their way, on its way to Israel is being targeted, and they say that won't stop until, the only ships that will be allowed through are ones carrying humanitarian aid and food aid and whatnot to Gaza, and they won't stop till a ceasefire is reached, and Israel, you know, retreats and surrenders and gives up. And again, this is really big, because not only have the U.S., you know, deployed this operation, which isn't going as well as they planned, you know, the French and the Italians have already pulled out to protect their own ships and their own independent operation. And as of right now, the only ships involved are the seven U.S. Navy ships involving the USS Eisenhower, the aircraft carrier, and then a British ship and a Greek ship. The Australians literally sent 11 staff officers, so... That is their participation in Operation Prosperity Guardian. So thank you, Aussie bros, for for that one. And of course, they included on the list the Seychelles. So we recruit the naval superpower of the Seychelles, a population 100,000 off the coast of Africa, to enlist in this operation. So this shows you how willing uh, people were to engage in a international US-led operation around something, as other commentators pointed out, as something as basically uncontroversial as Protecting the most important global shipping route in the world, <laughs> they that seems that the world can't even agree on that. So multipolarity has truly arrived in that regard. But not only is the you know response and the effect of you know war, but not really declaring war on the Houthis in Yemen, you know not working properly for the U.S. But Iran and even Saudi Arabia have basically you know given the Houthis a green light. Saudi Arabia has completely rejected you know, normalization with Israel and is telling other countries that they should break ties with Israel and Iran, when asked by the U.S. to, I guess, bring the Houthis to heel, they said, no, uh, you can bring Israel to heel and then maybe we'll tell the Houthis to stop. And then this comes on the verge of, I want to get your thoughts on this, the Pentagon recently released a statement saying that they believe a ship was hit in the Indian Ocean shot from Iran proper, like not Houthis as a proxy, but that the Iranians themselves hit this ship. I'm wondering your thoughts on this and how this whole situation could
1: escalate. Yeah, exactly. I think and. In- you know, it's it's quite telling that Iran to this point has denied actually supporting openly the Houthis in Yemen. In fact, you know, Iran has denied supporting everyone except Hezbollah. So uh, Iran has stated, you know, a few times it's or it's been quite clear that Hezbollah is very much not an Iranian proxy, but they're willing to ally themselves with Hezbollah openly. Meanwhile, you know, we saw we saw rumors and even maybe misinformation thrown in, uh, you know, around October, around the time of the operation Al-Aqsa Mosque by the uh, by Hamas that Hamas was also a you know, a proxy of Iran, but that's kind of fallen through. And that's, uh, you know, Iran has never claimed that. And in fact, Iran has never claimed to actually openly, you know, control the Yemenis Houthis. It's, you know, these Houthis are very kind of, you know, yeah, maybe they be, they're allied with Iran, but Iran has never claimed that. And to this day, again, Iran is denying any of this involvement in the Suez Canal Red Sea crisis, which I think is very telling because Iran understands Things have heightened to such an extent, and you know we've all spoken about this for over a year now. But we are on the on the verge of World War Three, and the only question is where will this World War Three escalate to a hot point? Or like, you know, it's, there's already hot points around the world, but Iran doesn't want to be one of the initial places where this is staged. And you know, this is not really in theory, but Iran does see, I think provocations not just by israelis but also during the trump administration the us itself has you know Donald trump several times by assassinating iranian the iranian iranian general by you know attacking iranian positions in syria things like that and iraq as well has already shown that it's willing actually to go or at least have a long-range war with iran and it has had a trade war with iran for you know a few decades now at this point since the revolution So Iran does see that provocations are afoot. And this recent bombing in in the Indian Ocean, I mean, I think Iran will adamantly deny any involvement in that. It's just a matter of, well, how far is the US and its allies willing, uh, how far are they willing to go? And will India as well as this sort of BRICS, this strong BRICS ally that the US apparently has? It's one of the few BRICS countries which is quite quite friendly with the united states is india willing to go you know with the us and kind of pressure iran into you know maybe making a public apology of sorts you know it's it's really it's really strenuous at this point we can see the entire middle eastern conflict at the moment you know the world needs a bad guy and the bad guy being hamas is a little bit it's a little bit hard to paint hamas as the bad guys because they've been oppressed for so long so there needs to be a new big baddie and that new big baddie is clearly persia and iran and that's a very easy target as well because not only does it sound like iraq which you know we've been taught since you know for two decades already that that was the main enemy of freedom and democracy in the middle east but iran also has been painted several times over the last few decades as the main islamic enemy superpower in the middle east that needs to be taken down so i think iran is very aware of this and they're going to take any including diplomatic measures for example through both china saudi arabia and russia in order to stop any provocation from taking place and being dragged into a new hot war in the Middle East. I think it's extremely dangerous what's happening at the moment.
0: Yeah, and this all comes on the, I mean, this happened today, I believe. The UN basically announced after nine years a normalization between the Houthi forces and whatever other backed forces are in Yemen. And I think this comes as Saudi Arabia basically accepts that the Islamic world is totally united now behind Gaza and behind the Palestinians. And there's just no political, geostrategic, religious there's just no benefit or reason to go against the palestinians in this regard i guess the uae is the only power that sees it differently at this point maybe bahrain i'm not sure exactly where they've been standing i know the uae have been the major cucks but saudi arabia even though they're usually big and sweet on israel and the us it seems that for better or for worse mohammed bin salman and the others have realized that you know it's it would not be strategic to ally against the rest of the islamic world at this point i mean we see malaysia you know closing off threatening to close off the malacca straits you know two ships bound for israel and israeli ships malaysia you know going hard as a muslim country i mean remember indonesia the fourth most populous country in the world you know very pro-palestinian at this point so you know the population is not on israel's side around the world if you're thinking about this globally but as far as iran you mentioned india i think actually Kashmir and in india pakistan is heating up which would mirror onto the Israel Palestine conflict as Pakistan is a strong supporter of Israel and India is a strong I mean, Pakistan is a strong supporter of Palestine, and Israel and India are close allies, so in that regard there's the whole anti Muslim thing with the Hindu nationalists and everything. We don't have time to talk about Kashmir, but that's something we'll be keeping our eyes on. But yeah, I'm sure Iran will deny the attack on the ship in the Indian Ocean. I'm sure that again, the Pentagon will decide whether they not want to believe them or not and whether they want to push this as a escalation towards them because, again, there's a big danger. I mean, there's just a big potential for escalation right now, as the Houthis have shown. I believe they conducted the first successful ground-to-ship assault in, like, modern warfare history with, like, a land-based missile hitting a ship. That's the Houthis on a... on some kind of U.S.-Israeli ship. And so I think they realized that there, there's some major hardware in danger, whether it's an aircraft carrier or another ship, and this could go down. And I mean, if that goes down, all bets are off, of course. And we mentioned World War Three. I believe we're already in World War Three, but if we say World War Three begins, that means, you know, a superpower gets involved and that means Iran, the US, Russia, and obviously Russia's involved in Ukraine, but if Russia then embraces another front, that would easily be like anyone would recognize that as World War Three, not just us, you know, prophecy heads on here talking about this. But Dimitri, you mentioned Hezbollah, and that's kind of where we have to go next, of course. I don't know how much Hezbollah has been escalating more so as Israel has been escalating. There's reports that Biden specifically asked Netanyahu not to carry out preemptive strikes against Hezbollah. They say the U.S. doubted Israeli intelligence on Hezbollah preparing to cross the Israeli border in an Al-Aqsa flood-style attack, I guess you could say. But Israel has really been going hard on the southern countryside and even more northern regions of Lebanon. And, of course, they recently struck an orthodox monastery of... Saint Mamas, which was tragic, and it seems that Israel seems to already be treating this as a multi-front war as opposed to waiting for something to happen, and the whole Muslim world, of course, is waiting for Hezbollah to act, but that's the thing about the Houthis is, for better or for worse, they are the only ones in the Islamic world actually putting their money where their mouth is. Like, everyone else is like, you know, they have all the rhetoric, they're rattling the saber against the Zionist entity, they're saying they want to drive them out of Tel Aviv, out of Jerusalem, and to avenge the martyrs, but only the Houthis... The Houthis have only not marched in hundreds of thousands on Israel because the Saudis have refused them passage. You know, they're just, they're literally doing everything they can with their missiles. They've literally blockaded the Bab mandeb and the Suez Canal. Like these are the most relevant trade routes. They've effectively, you know, disrupted global trade to raise awareness and to And they've all said, look, just ceasefire, just stop bombing Gaza, and this stops. So they've really gained a lot of leverage in a very short amount of time. So really hats off to them for being the only people to put their money where their mouth is there. But, Dimitri, I'm wondering what you're thinking on this monastery destruction.
1: So regarding the situation of the monastery uh, in Lebanon actually being bombed by Israel, the IDF, again, it's similar to the Ukrainian bombing of monasteries and churches, which we've seen throughout the last year and a half. It's just somehow, you know, these bombs and these planes, right? They just happen to fly over Christian territory, and this—it's a monastery. It's literally isolated in the forest. near some hills. There's no army base next to it. There are no targets, so there is no real excuse for Israeli, you know, and in the Israeli military. It's very accurate. Like it's naturally, or the bombardment of the civilians in Gaza. These are not accidental. These are. These are planned collateral, you know, collateral targetings of civilians in Palestine. We've seen in in Gaza, we've seen this. It's quite explicit. There will be war crime trials after this, but of course, the bombardment of an orthodox monastery. And it's, you know, I think from we haven't seen real evidence of like how severe the destruction is at the moment. But it is, quite telling and i think on an esoteric note right saint mamas for those of you not aware saint mamas is one of the early saints from the region he was a saint who lived in the 200s ad i think 250 to about 270 he was a young orthodox christian man who was martyred in Caesarea, which was a city in northern israel at that time in, in the roman empire it was one of the main actual early dioceses of the christian church even larger to some extent than jerusalem itself but saint mamas in the in the life of saints narrative he actually had a pet lion and you know him and his pet lion were, you know, in the story as he was martyred, his lion actually came, picked up his body, and like took it to the local Christian community. And then there's this lion that you know is like a symbol of the saint. A lot of Saint Mamas icons, the lion is present, and we see this in a lot in you know Middle Eastern Orthodox Christians. The lion, just like the bear in Russian, in the lives of Russian saints, is very present. The lion is present in a lot of the lives of these Middle Eastern Christians, and we also seen propaganda of Zionists in Israel, they try to take the lion as the symbol of Zionism. But in fact, the lion is used by Orthodox Christians a lot more, a lot more legitimately. It is the symbol, of course, of the house of Judah, or, you know, Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. He came from that particular house and Israel, the Zionist the Israelis trying to take that symbol for themselves. I think it's it's probably quite telling and they know exactly who that monastery belongs to mind you like they have all the targets they know exactly each facility on the lebanese map they've studied these territories for decades on end right so the israeli military doctrine is very well developed and so i guess symbolically speaking them striking you know this saint porphyrius church this particular monastery of saint Mamas, it is this like again battle of symbols right we've seen the story of the 40 headed 40 beheaded babies all these weird weird analogies that they make all the time you best you best believe it's planned in some esoteric sense but again very sad because we if we receive news about monks being killed things like that which may emerge in the next coming days and weeks from Lebanon again this is more losses for the local christian communities which are not exactly you know yeah, they're not exactly up and coming and prosperous either. Like these are very small communities which somehow have survived since you know we can say the you know the Islamic conquests and things like that. These communities have learned how to thrive in the very difficult circumstances with, little, with very little funding, very little pilgrimages, you know throughout the you know tumultuous few centuries. So it's just very sad that the IDF chooses to target these Christian communities, but it's not surprising. like let's lest we forget what the Zionist and the shall we say like Rothschild type leadership in Ukraine has been doing for the last year and a half or even the last eight years since 2014. So again, it's part of that same anti-Christian trend. If it's not, you know, political persecution, it's whoops, the military has accidentally bombed an Orthodox monastery, right? It's it's very similar. And we do understand uh, the Muslims who, you know, they claim that, you know, random mosques have been getting bombed all over Palestine. We do have solidarity in that. These people, you know, they treat they treat Christians and Muslims in many ways in the same fashion. They do see us all as unworthy goyim, as, you know, idolaters, and they do target our, uh, you know, so to speak, our respective holy places. I think it's part of that ideological warfare that we've seen in the Middle East for, it's, we've seen it for a long time, but now we see it in a very explicit, uh, degenerate sense. People may
0: ask, like, oh, why would Israel destroy these random churches? Don't they know it's bad optics? It's like, look, this is in Der Mimas, which is a, town in southern Lebanon but not like far southern Lebanon this is near the Golan Heights near the border with the Golan Heights and this is territory that they explicitly want why are they trying to provoke Hezbollah they want to provoke Hezbollah to permanently occupy the southern regions of Lebanon and they don't want to occupy these places full of mosques and full of churches with these pesky Christians and these people that won't submit to their Noahide laws and all these other things and ultimately worship you know the antichrist at the temple mount they want all of that cleared out. And if they can clear it out under the pretense of, you know, a legitimate war against Hamas and terrorism, they're going to do that as opposed to, you know, just doing what they are going to eventually do, which is just march on those places and kick those people out. So, you know, that's why that's happening. This this area lies well deep within the heart of greater Israel. So the fact that they are still having to clear these places out is probably pretty frustrating to, you know, the Kahanists and the maximalists in the region. But yeah, no, it's a tragedy. Of course, they struck St. George Orthodox Church in southern Lebanon a few weeks back. We talked about that. Of course, St. Porfirio's Church. And they've been bombing multiple properties of the Latin Patriarchate in Gaza, of course, as well. The united heads of all the churches of Jerusalem released a statement about their recent meeting with President Isaac Herzog of Israel. And apparently the Israeli media was spinning it as if it was just a Christmas-related visit, but they were like, no, this was about us demanding a ceasefire and demanding that you stop targeting Christian sites like you've clearly been doing and things like that. So it's very tension, very tense in the Holy Land right now, right on you know Christmas Eve. By the way, Merry Christmas, everybody. You know, Of course, everyone in the West is celebrating and everyone on the new calendar in the Orthodox Church, of course, is celebrating. Obviously, you on the old calendar have a few more weeks to go, but no, it's unfortunate that all these things are happening and these Christian places are being targeted on on the eve of... The celebration of the birth of Christ, it's, it's very tragic. But again, with Gaza, these people are getting pushed further and further south. They're going deeper and deeper. And however, it does seem that Hamas is really, you know, lasting longer and putting up a fight and really giving a pretty high, getting their own body count pretty high and taking out a whole lot of Merkava tanks as far as I can tell.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think in terms of, you know, th- there are the fortunate statistics of, you know, and the photographs of the random tanks and armored troop carriers just completely destroyed and trash and we- trash. And we know these these things do not belong to Hamas because Hamas in general, it's just, how how do we say it? They have scouts, infantry, and that's about it. They have no Navy, no armored vehicles, things like that. It's definitely very limited. Meanwhile, on the Israeli side, you know, you do have these armored vehicles, planes, things like that. So and actually seeing all this armor being destroyed by the Hamas resistance is uh, is very, for, I think it's really foretelling the fact that their resistance is going so strong. And it's essentially guerrilla warfare at the high, to, to the highest extent, very urban warfare-esque. And that's only because Israel chose to actually physically invade Gaza. I think that's the main problem. In terms of like civilian losses and these negative statistics, because 2023 is coming to an end, it's, we're almost uh, two, three months now into the, you know, it's coming on to the third month of the Operation Al Aqsa Mosque and the Israeli retaliation in Palestine and Gaza and the, this, you know, inhuman war that they've started against the Palestinians. But we are looking at close to 20,000 people dead, confirmed, between eight and 9,000 children. And these are children under the age of eighteen. Most of them, in fact, uh, a lot of them, babies and infants, and you know, children of you know, pre-high school, pre-middle school age. It's really horrific, and these numbers are staggering. We've, we, we've said this for a few weeks, but this is nothing like what we've seen, I guess, in the, in the 21st century combined. I mean, even during the U.S. invasion of Iraq, this sort of concentration of deaths we've just simply not kind of laid our eyes upon this so it does seem like a big ritual sacrifice of sorts we've said this a few times but yeah just to horrific statistics it is reaching that level where and i think the world is coming you know in solidarity by and by the world i don't mean like the forces of the globalists i mean these various multi you know communities which will form the future multipolar world are all coming together in solidarity through the united nations and voting for things like a two-state solution pressure in israel ceasefires things like that from different And even country like India, again, is voting for these things. So we're seeing, despite the anti-Islamic rhetoric happening at home, some of these countries, which are not not exactly all pro-Muslim, they are realizing even countries like Australia, right, occupied by essentially Zog and globalism, is voting for some of these anti-Israeli propositions at the United Nations. Not that Israel will follow along and listen to these propositions, right, at the, you know, General Assembly or even the, from the Security Council itself, right? Israel is very, very independent, very prideful at the moment. Netanyahu personally is like the personification of this pride, like this satanic figure that he is. But I think definitely, the you know, the more the conflict will continue, the more solidarity the Muslim world will show. I, I really liked Alexander Dugan's comment, you know, just closing the, Sort of houthi segment of this of this episode is just he's saying that the houthis are keeping you know keeping the islamic world uh, accountable because they're the only ones who are actually alongside hezbollah they're the only two groups which are keeping the islamic world in support of of palestine really properly they have you know they have teeth in the game they are actually retaliating and they're not they're not, you know, they're not bringing shame to their particular religion and their, you know, religious cultural solidarity, which they have with the Palestinians and Arabs of the region. I think it's that's worthy of something. And I think long term, it'll look really nice in the history books and also in the, you know, if if the Islamic, Islamic forces do win this war long term, uh, ideologically as well as actually physically on the ground, I think the Houthis will be raised up on the shields of, you know, this resistance and, and the coming order in the Middle East, we can say that. Well, with the
0: exception of Hamas itself, the Shia world definitely wins in regards to, you know, actually resisting Israel, whether it's Hezbollah, the Houthis, or, you know, the Islamic resistance in Iraq and Syria, which have united and you know, are the ones that have been consistently bombing the U.S. bases there. And so those that axis is effectively all Shia, so I don't know, maybe Hamas, maybe they need to convert to Shia Islam. <laughs> I don't know if that's what that means. You know, obviously they all need to become orthodox if they want to have a chance at, at any kind of real victory, but... Again, we have to look at this from the perspective of again Hamas doing fairly well, Hezbollah always there on the in the north escalation possible at any point, and the Houthis really, you know, going balls to the wall on this, really, you know, pressuring the U.S., keeping these critical shipping routes effectively hostage until Gaza gets, you know, relief. And you have to start to question like what happens in the midst of a Israeli collapse, whether it's a regime collapse and a sort of not civil war but you know very much transitional, you know, unsure leadership stage because we know netanyahu you know he doesn't go down without a fight and then of course even the situation of let's say the u.s decides to go really hard on iran and the houthis and just kick it up a notch and then they decide you know what let's just go all in on israel like what happens in a potential you know israel collapse situation like let's say you know we start to see some end times type stuff like al Aqsa mosque exploded you know people storming into you know these holy places, and you know, Tel Aviv itself and other things like that, Jerusalem, you know, the walls torn down, Iran, you know, directly moving in, Hezbollah, you know, this all happening around the same time as the election. If you want to hear a certain kind of take on this regard, this somewhat eschatological thing, you know, be sure to listen to our latest Ether Hour, the Q&A we just did for supporters. Uh, we discussed this, we discussed the issue of Donald Trump as a potential type of antichrist, so you're going to want to listen to that, it'll be linked below, but Yeah, all of this is going down as we get closer and closer to that 2024 election, and of course, there's elections in Russia, there's elections in other places around the world as well, but all eyes are, of course, on the United States, on Washington, D.C., as, of course, the persecution of Donald Trump continues, and the latest take being, of course, the Colorado Supreme Court banning him from the Republican primary ballot. So, as of right now, since the Supreme Court hasn't weighed in yet, Trump is no longer on the... Like if you're voting as a Republican, you'll only be able to vote for Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, or Chris Christie, or you'd have to write somebody in. And of course, that's ridiculous. Obviously, I'm sure this will get, I'm pretty confident this will get overturned by the Supreme Court. And even Gabba Newsom came out totally against this similar idea in California. So obviously this is even unpopular on the left, but this is really interesting and it really ties into, again, we've talked about Donnie Darkin. He's a guy kind of positing some of these theories about Trump and, you know, his potential parallels with, you know, unfortunate figures in the future. And this is one of those things where, as Trump, you know, perhaps comes into power with even characters like Louis Farrakhan and people you wouldn't expect supporting him, he may come in to, you know, render in or help somebody else, perhaps, of the tribe of Dan, render in a peace that, you know, no one saw coming in the Middle East or whatever. And these are the kind of things, you know, people have to be wary for. So, Dimitri, what are your thoughts on this uh, Trump situation?
1: I think it sets an incredibly dangerous precedent for, you know, I don't want to sound like one of those main TV talk shows, but our democracy is in danger and liberalism is under attack. And I mean, very openly and in a real sense, because, well, what's the alternative here? Is it a dictatorship of of the globalists or is it a dictatorship of say Donald Trump? Because there is no alternative to liberal democracy in the U S the U S was built by the founding fathers as as an election based system where you have it's a representative government. There has never been there's never been a person who's held dictatorial power or or anything similar to the monarchies we've seen in Europe. So there really is no alternative if elections are not free and fair. Right, so that's the that's the standard. But this case of Anderson and Griswold in Colorado, in the color that's gone all the way to the Colorado Supreme Court. Essentially, the the majority of judges in this particular in in this particular court has held that the Fourteenth Amendment, right. And I'll read the Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment of the United States, which so the judges have seen that Donald Trump is not eligible to actually be on the ballots in accordance with Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. And I'll just read out the amendment. This is their interpretation, right, as the as the Supreme Court, the highest court in Colorado. This is how they interpret the 14th Amendment. And apparently it applies to Trump. So they said, so this is the amendment section three. No person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States who have previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States, and Trump has, you know, as the president has taken an oath, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So, but the Congress has not voted, there is no evidence that Trump has not gone through a court or has been proven to be an ex-insurrectionist under the Fourteenth Amendment. So this, so they've the Colorado court, the Supreme Court has essentially tried Donald Trump and found him guilty of insurrection for the first time. This is crazy. I mean, essentially, it's you know he he should be court-martialed if he was a military general. Like this is some uh, Shakespearean level Coriolanus-like type of move, right? They're basically saying, look, he's a traitor to the United States this is absolutely insane and now they're just going to remove him off the ballot and again we're you know just a bit less than a year away from the US election what will this mean you know there's other states are responding other governors other supreme court justices you know lawyers from all over the US constitutional lawyers because this is again a constitutional law question and don't get me wrong for those are saying that oh the constitution is you know quite strong in the US yeah it's a really well written document but Courts and judges and justices have misinterpreted plenty of times, which has led to really dire consequences, including child sacrifice. The 13th Amendment has been misinterpreted in the past in the famous case of Roe v. v. Wade to essentially legalize and allow abortion, right? So millions of babies and children have been aborted and murdered essentially by medical practitioners and those actually bringing, bringing pregnant women into these abortion clinics by, the, by this false interpretation of the constitution, right? And again, things like the second amendment has also been misinterpreted plenty of times by various courts around the country in different states. So certain weapons are illegal to, you know, there's all kinds of misinterpretations of the constitution. This one, essentially could lead to a civil war. I mean, it's getting really extreme in the U.S. leading up to this next year election, 11 months away.
0: I mean, the civil war predictive programming is going pretty hard. Obviously, any kind of civil war, quote unquote, in the U.S. at this point would totally be like an op. It would be some kind of military, you know, situation. There would never be like an actual, oh, two sides, liberals, red and blue, pitch battle. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But the crazy thing about all of this is, Like you said, this is unprecedented levels of persecution. Like, literally, we went from, for better or for worse, most people respecting the elections, you know, prior to 2016, 2016, for better or for worse, to now. I mean, yeah, I mean, unironic. Like, our democracy is under attack, you know, straight up. I mean, that's – I'm I'm full MSNBC right now because that's just what – that's literally just what's happening. I mean – they literally are just. This is like when Putin does this kind of stuff. It's like headlines all around the world. Like, look at what this guy's doing. And he turns out he's like banning some like overt CIA agent or some like weird lesbian or something like that. And and then you know they ban. Meanwhile, the Democrats and like entire state supreme courts ban the most popular presidential candidate in America. I mean, this literally comes as Trump leads in every single poll and every single battleground state. He's like up five in the RCP average. He didn't ever lead. He wasn't even within four points of any of his opponents ever in the 2016 or 2020 election cycles on the RCP average. Like these are completely unprecedented polling numbers for Trump. If the election was held today, he would win in a landslide. It would be crazy. So all of this is going on as this, he has this, meteoric third rise again like did anyone think that you know when trump went down the escalator in 2015 that here we would be in 2023 <laughs> still talking about him running for president you know it kind of re- it kind of in its own way fulfills the fact that you know he's almost already broken the three-term rule, because, you know, he was so relevant for the entire Biden term here, then he's going to come back into power, and we know that at the end of his term, he's going to have some claim to, like, oh, we got to do a rerun on the first term because of the Russiagate, so we're in full-on post-democracy here, the age of Caesars, you know, it has arrived, and, you know, the ether is tearing, monarchy rising, total dictatorial fascism is here, Sorry, libs, it's over. And they did it themselves. They, you know, they, they perhaps fired the first shot across the bow. And turns out, religious extremist monarchists are have been waiting in the wings for this moment forever. So looks like it's over for the liberalism. But again, it's just, and this is all going to have a huge effect on whether it's the war in Ukraine, or whether it's the Gaza situation, of course, this Red Sea situation, obviously, and then, of course, China, Taiwan, we'll talk about that later in the show. But as far as the situation in Russia goes, obviously, I think Trump would be much more willing to cede some territory to Putin, although I think he's more hoping that Biden will have to cede a lot of territory to Putin, and he'll just use that as an excuse to slam Biden and say, none of this would have happened if I was president, blah, 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 which, you know, who knows if that's true or not. But I guess that takes us to some comments that Putin made recently. Dimitri, what did, uh, what did Vlad have to say about potential territories being ceded to other places something that we've been talking about since literally episode one of world war now
1: yeah very interestingly about putin actually and this came at the same time as this map of you know a potential ukrainian russian division right the division of the ukrainian land has kind of been circulating around you know the russo telegrams so you kind of aligned with putin making direct comments saying that well look ukraine you know it's you know, certain Western Western territories ever once at one point belonged to Poland, Lithuania, countries like that, Hungary, and making these comments directly to surrounded by military generals, and Putin's directly saying that well suggestingly, you know, implicitly implying that, look, maybe Poland should step in and actually take certain Western territories for itself and maybe govern them in a lot of, in a better fashion than how the Ukrainian government has been doing. I'm not exactly in opposition to that particular proposition, like temporarily, right? But again, Putin has made the suggestion that perhaps, uh, you know, to this carcass of Ukraine, it can be dealt amongst, you know, some of the powers of the region. Now, this comes, right, in light of the fact that Finland has officially, right, already more or less entered into NATO as well. And so Putin at the same time has also announced the creation of, the, of a new military, uh, military oblast. So we've spoken about the different military oblasts around Russia. So this one is called the Leningrad uh, Vyanyi Okrug, right? So Vien- the Leningrad Vyanyi Okrug is essentially this military command center, command zone where essentially it has its own military administration just north of st petersburg around the Karelia region those uh, regions adjacent to the arctic circle up there but also essentially completely in line with finland so in order to i guess protect russia from you know, future nato incursions in the region you know if a potential world war 3 breaks, breaks out so again very Powerful announcements, and again, uh, you know, hypothetically here, Conrad, because a lot of people have been speaking uh, on Telegram and Twitter and different places. Well, what would it look like if certain, you know, if countries like Romania, uh, Moldova took bits of Ukraine for themselves, and even countries like countries like Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, and what would happen if NATO countries actually took bits of Ukraine? Because wouldn't that technically move NATO even further east? I think that's one negative factor because. Again, no one's making deals with Poland to step out of NATO, right? Like, we'd love if Poland, Hungary, Greece, if these potentially based and right-wing conservative future Christian, you know, Christian-dominated countries would leave NATO and actually leave this abandoned, degenerate defense alliance. But this suggestion is not really being made. So just wondering your thoughts on it, because again, this is really up in the end. Putin's suggestion was very much a hypothetical, but a very strong one. Like, this is not Lukashenko, because Lukashenko would make these sort of statements on a, almost a weekly basis. But for Putin to suggest something like this. This is radical. And it also suggests that, look, Putin is probably willing to go all the way to Kiev, right? So his, some of his ministers have already made that statement, but Putin is directly saying that, look, Western Ukraine, we could have a division of the pie here and we're willing to share some of the, some of whatever's left of Ukraine with you guys. At this
0: point, it definitely seems at the very least, obviously the Southern coast of the Black Sea and up to probably, you know, the Dnieper river and perhaps farther is the minimum of what Russia is going to take. But, yeah, we talk about the potential of NATO, you know, moving east with these potential cessions of territory, you know, Galicia and these places, Transcarpathia to Hungary and whatnot. But I think this really sets up Moldova as, like, the future neutral state battle, which, again, is probably just going to, frankly, be another Ukraine in the next 30, 40 years at the latest, because it's going to be another, you know, who knows what happens after the Ukraine division happens you know nato's going to want to fast track moldova russia's going to exert soft power on moldova i could see it perhaps getting fast tracked into nato and that causing problems or russia fighting really hard and you know doing something even dramatic when it comes to you know pre transnistria so that's all you know that's all coming in relevant into play so yeah i mean lithuania i don't know how that border would work if the revival of the polish lithuanian commonwealth i think that would involve you know, some rejoining between Poland and Lithuania, which has been talked about. I mean, I don't know how much, you know, Donald Tusk coming to power would be for that. He probably would be more in favor of that than actually taking any territory from Ukraine. I don't know his positions exactly. I need to look into it. I didn't think that dinosaur was going to come back into power. But yeah, the Poland situation got a little more interesting in that regard, I guess. And you mentioned Belarus taking territory in the north of Ukraine. These are all these are all possibilities on the table at this point. And of course, there is division in the ranks in Ukraine. Zelensky is, you know, coping. He's trying to say, you know, they're saying they're gonna dig in and resist the advancement, so they've already completely abandoned, you know, retaking territory. That's basically off the table. However, Putin seems to indicate that he's ready for a ceasefire. Do you think he's only saying that as a as a bluff? Do you like what 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 does he mean when he says that?
1: No, I think it's it's completely open, especially now that Zelensky has announced as well, right? So we see essentially both sides are mimicking one another. So at this point, everybody's speaking about peace except Zelensky, right? That's on one hand. Both sides have an election coming up and both sides have very similar number of troops which both presidents have confirmed. So Zelensky has said openly we have 670,000 servicemen. Russia, you know President Putin has said we have going close to just over 600,000. so it seems like the numbers on the ground are basically equal. Russia obviously having the technological advantage but uh, you know Ukraine having con- constant Western support financially and also new shipments of all kinds of goods as well you know missiles things like that coming in all the time and so the endless economy of the West is behind Ukraine let's just not forget that meanwhile Russia really doesn't have anybody supporting it even even China is not really shipping that much into Russia frankly hey, they have
0: the powerful they have the powerful ammo making North Korean war horse behind them don't forget that.
1: True. Lest we forget. And of course, the Shahid drones from Iran uh, Iran and Persia. So like, yes, there are supporting for factors, but they really, they don't equal what Ukraine has behind it, right? So, but definitely Russia does have allies. Let's not, Russia is not as isolated as it once was maybe during the Chechen campaigns when literally nobody really was supporting them and they had to literally solve their own problems, right? In the Georgian, yeah, in that, in that region. And it was just really, really tough. But at this point, Russia does have international allies and in support and it's really good, I think, long term. But for sure, I think Putin's going for... I I think he's aiming for a peace treaty now. Either Lukashenko has gotten to him or maybe the fact that, look, at this point, it's really important to just solidify the front lines this front lines haven't really moved much we have a dfk falling i mean any week now at this point the russians have essentially all but taken it the donetsk front is a really really tough actually to push through just the hillsides we've seen bakhmut has you know now that we're looking back a year from now the year started with the siege of bakhmut and that has ended somewhere around uh april may so that took a roughly six months right it's a six month long long siege and it's only one city there's many more bakhmut like scenarios hypothetically on the table in the Donetsk Oblast, right, which Ukraine still controls these these makeshift fortress cities, which is really unfortunate because, again, this is like destroyed landscape, which has been littered by shelling mines, things like that. It's just completely er- eradicated the territory through its bombardment by both sides. It's, just, it's really, really quite, um, quite dramatic and horrible. But let's just not forget, so these front lines have solidified and at this point, you know, Russia has shown itself that look it wants to be working potentially on a on the domestic situation moving towards the election. And it's no it's a great time for both sides, I think, to actually strike a peace deal, even if it's three, four months long, until say April, May, maybe even the summer of twenty twenty four. So around June, July. And that way the new the election can come in. Putin can possibly arrange some changes to his cabinet, right? Maybe rearrange some ministers, things like that. So, you know, fix up United Russia, which has been You know, there there have been movements in the Russian political sphere after COVID. Remember Medvedev moving to the sidelines, a new prime minister coming to power. So Russia has been having internal movements. Possibly Putin's getting a a bit older at this point as well. So potentially maybe bringing forward a a candidate for the future leadership of the party, maybe a future president. You know, all these things can be done in relative in during, you know, more or less a ceasefire peacetime. For Ukraine, of course, this would mean dire consequence because, again, it's a wartime economy. You can say it's a completely internationally funded. The Ukrainians are the modern mujah, mujahideen, right, of the Taliban that we've seen Rambo-free. So these are directly outside funded forces. And just like Israel is very heavily funded by the U.S., these are these U.S. proxies in Ukraine, they depend on the war ongoing. So I think Zelensky will be resisting any peace Peace pressure for a while now but again will a peace benefit ukraine and how will it benefit the church these are all factors we have to take into account will persecution continue in ukraine during peacetime as well because could they pressure the russian side to in order you know, to act and to actually break the peace deal by bullying the orthodox church in ukraine especially we're talking about the non-schismatic church, right? The Ukrainian Orthodox Church on the Metropolitan Onufri. Will they be continue Ukrainization of the population, a cultural genocide of anything Russian in the region? All these things can and will probably occur in peacetime as well. So a peace treaty does it benefit Russian Orthodox folks? Yes, most likely in the short term. But if it if it's prolonged, then it's, you know, the peace deal lasts for an entire year and there's a ceasefire. What if two years, I mean, these are generations of people, these are thousands of people who will be negatively affected by this evil regime in Ukraine, right? Especially if Zelensky wins this election next year. So huge implications, I think. But prospect-wise, right, I think we are looking at every side except Ukraine wanting a peace deal and some sort of temporary ceasefire, similar to, you know, what's what, what everybody's been calling for in Gaza and between the Israelis and Hamas. People just want some breathing room, I think, especially the globalists who've been, you know, playing chess all over the world. And I think it would benefit Russia quite greatly. Yeah,
0: obviously, any kind of ceasefire hopefully would be followed by some pretty sizable concessions to the Russians or else Putin might face some perhaps domestic resistance from patriotic entities I guess you could say though I don't think he has any intention of cutting any of these you know districts and oblasts that are now fully part of Russia and the constitution in half or anything like that so I think there's some some grander aspirations and of course, there's still the military operation of demilitarizing Ukraine that they also say is ongoing and will continue to go on. So we at the end of the day, no one truly knows what is happening because Putin is making some decisions and the West is making decisions. And do we even really know what Zelensky wants? I'm not sure. I mean, he probably is ready to go to the negotiating table, but I'm sure there's entities both within Ukraine and their quote unquote elite as well as the West. And, you know, I'm sure even Israel is uh, having a play in this because they recognize that it's the other hot conflict going on and that it directly will impact their support as both of these entities are being directly funded and fully funded effectively by the United States. So how one fares, the other continues to go. So I'm wondering if the Israelis want a ceasefire, if the Israelis want it to continue and escalate as as a distraction point. I'm wondering, what do you think? Does Israel have have an opinion on whether the war goes on or not?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think we... We haven't really spoken about the Jewish factor, right? Uh, just given the fact that Kolomoisky, Zelensky's greatest sponsor at his previous elections is currently in prison, and he's sitting out a very cozy sentence due to corruption charges that he misappropriated funds which were, you know, supposed to go towards the funding of the Ukrainian military, and he had his finger in a lot of different pies and, you know, it's similar to Prigozhin in Russia, but a lot more, a lot richer, he was literally the first or richest man in all of Ukraine, so this this Jewish Zionist figure, right, Kolomoisky, and so who exactly stands behind Zelensky for this upcoming election? And what ties do they have to Israel? Because most of these folks have, like Kolomoisky's family had Israeli citizenship. Zelensky, um, you know, exactly his Jewish relatives, right? Do they have Israeli citizenship? Can Netanyahu directly state that, look, you guys, we need to sign a peace treaty so the US can focus on supporting us and completing this Operation Prosperity Guardian in the Red Sea? Like, stop, you know, taking away attention. You know, by this stupid fighting for some for some Donetsk oblast, right? That, like, as as important as Heavenly Jerusalem is as a sort of 2.0 project, I think they're not willing to take away from you know Israeli direct you know rabbinical support in in Israel proper. I think the risks, you know, the Islamic world is is really pushing itself onto like encroaching on this like. You know, you can say uh, occupied Jewish territory in the, the, this territory that the Israelis and Zionists have settled over the last few decades. I think this has placed a lot of pressure on the rabbinical community. So, what exactly they're thinking behind the scenes, yeah, I think it's, you're right, it's it's taking eyes away from Ukraine. And there could be, yeah, direct Israeli Zionist pressure on the families of some of these other oligarchs, similar to Kolomoisky. There is at least, you know, at least a at least 10% of the parliamentarians in in the Kiev parliament, in the Verkhovna rather either hold Israeli citizenship or they all can speak Yiddish or can speak Hebrew. They're all semi-quasi-Jewish. And that's like a, a huge misrepresentation, right? Because the Israeli population, the Jewish population of Ukraine is something like 0.5%. It's like less than 1%. Meanwhile... There are so many of them holding parliamentary seats, so yeah, that factor cannot be avoided. We've spoken about that factor in Moscow and Russia as well. It's a completely it's not a separate subject, but it also we've spoken how that could potentially impact Russia's support for you know for the resistance uh, you know against against Zionism as well. There is that pressure behind the scenes. Like, what will the people? What, what kind of Maidan? fifth column aspects could arise in Russia and you know, in Ukraine as well and Zelensky understands that he has to Zelensky is second to Netanyahu Netanyahu is the is the uh this quasi messiah type figure and Zelensky is a clown compared to him like he has to he's not the most important Jew in world politics Netanyahu is at the moment so he just has to take the back seat and i think that's what we have to appreciate as well um speaking about this big peace treaty so you're completely right
0: And of course, this all comes back to the U.S. situation. And we don't really, again, Trump, very much a wild card. I don't know if he'll fully forgive Netanyahu. I don't know if Netanyahu will even be in power when, and if Trump comes back to power as well. Obviously, we know Trump does have a grudge against him specifically. I don't know if there's other Likud members that he's closer with that he claims to like more than Netanyahu. I don't know how all this would go. Again, like I say in the Ether Hour episode, you have to go listen to it. We still do need to think about, you know, post-Trump politics as well. He's not, I don't think, the final guy, unless things get really crazy. But the overall, like, these two conflicts are just so intertwined, both because of the, you know, ethnic Jewish connection, the religious connection, and just the, just the geographical proximity. They're not that far from one another, just a black sea away. And all of this region you know, just the center of the world, Jerusalem. It's no wonder that all these things are happening around this part of the world and in the third Rome and around areas of the former second Rome and Constantinople. And of course, Greece is one of the only countries that's been roped into this situation. We mentioned them with Operation Prosperity Guardian. One of their ships is in the Red Sea. I can't imagine the Greek people are too happy about that. So, You know, we have to keep watching that situation. Again, Mitsotakis in Greece insists on doing the whole gay marriage thing. And, of course, the Orthodox Church in Greece has come out against that. You know, not as strongly as perhaps the Russian church might or others, but they said, you know, we're against gay marriage, we're against gay adoption, which they tried to do. And so then Mitsotakis and the government's like, okay, how about this? No gay adoption, but gay marriage. And the church is like, no, not what we said. So, you know, pray for Greece. It's a really unfortunate situation over there.
1: Yeah, so it's just you know speaking about the free rooms and kind of you know or, or the encroachment on Orthodox lands, right? We see the the Euro Commission has you know officially stated that we'd like to integrate Georgia into into the European Union. You know we saw that letter from from allegedly from Patriarch Ilya. So Georgia as well, just like Greece, is being roped into this weird coalition. Like the West does know that it does need to you know take over official Orthodox lands and push their governments in order to support this uh, this I guess falling. Hegemonic world order, right? It's really weird how these countries are getting more and more involved in supporting, uh, you know, the West. And when we say the West, we mean mainly the EU, the US, and NATO. These particular free countries/slash organizations and these alliances. So Georgia and Greece really need to move away from that. I'm not saying they need to directly ally themselves with Russia or this modern iteration in the Russian Federation if they don't want to, but definitely to move away from being enslaved by these these Western globalist states, which you know disrupt and degenerate their local cultures. I think that's probably the first step, right, in order to achieve actual cultural and state states right you know, proper state sovereignty, which, you know, we speak about and which you learn about in political political science classes and international relations. This is like the basics, right? Not have your cultures be subjugated to these uh, Western innovations, right? But
0: I think- Well, when you talk about, uh, you mentioned Georgia, you know, people can, you know, people can scream at me in the comments all they want. I'm sorry. If it's any Georgian listeners, I'm sure they may disagree, especially in the diaspora, but- I spoke with a former interior minister of Georgia in Russia, and he told me, you know, 40-50% of Georgians, you know, behind closed doors, they're pro-Russia, they don't mind Russia. Of course, they're still nationalist Georgians, but, you know, they don't believe a lot of the propaganda that claims that the empire was trying to genocide them or the Georgian language. You know, we've talked about how that's not really true and whatnot, so, you know, maybe we have some Russian Georgia, some Georgian Russophiles, you know, on the show in the future, or some Georgian people to talk about some of these things. but. Yeah, that's an interesting point about the, I almost forgot about Georgia, you know, granted EU candidate status. So that's definitely another big push. That's a, you know, that's the US, you know, putting pressure on Russia. I mean, they've recently, they released their plans for, you know, US troop placements and these Finnish bases all along the Russian border due to their NATO membership. And now this effective extension of the future EU border now to Russia. This is definitely, you know, a, a soft power flex from the U.S. that they're trying to show that they still have some relevance and power as Russia has enforced their mandate on the ground and totally defeated the Ukrainian military in their offensive. So, and of course this comes as the U.S., like you said, their failed coalition in the Red Sea, they can't even get that together. So, as many others have said, multipolarity is here, you know, this is this is all really happening. But, yeah, just as unfortunately Greece is battling with gay marriage on the civil front, of course the church standing strong. even. Churches that we think have some problems, like the church in Greece and, of course, the ecumenical patriarchate, which we talk about that in the Ether Hour as well. Dimitri really breaks down, you know, the issues of his canonical jurisdiction and his real authority and whatnot. So, again, linked below. Check it out. Get behind the paywall to hear the whole thing. It really helps us out. But that, of course, leads us into, you know, Rome itself, you know, the the fallen Rome, the papist Rome, how they have embraced, they seem to have embraced blessing of, of gay marriages and, again there's going to be a lot of cope that's really basically almost just as much of a story as the actual document itself being fiducia supplicans which is the latest document from Pope Francis that says effectively that couples involved in same-sex relations can receive a blessing from a priest and of course the statement that couples in same-sex relations can be in same-sex relationships can be blessed appears in the document four times And we saw everybody's favorite Jesuit, Father James Martin, immediately bless a quote unquote married gay couple holding hands in his church. You know, he blessed them as a priest, and we're just seeing this happen. He's not going to face any discipline if everyone's claiming, oh, he goes against that goes against the document, he did it wrong, all this stuff. Well, when he gets disciplined by the Pope, you know, you can you can say you were right, but I highly doubt that's gonna happen. He's blessed by the Pope. He has all sorts of privileges due to the Pope, and the Pope's a big fan of his, the Pope himself being a Jesuit you know, Father James Martin, high up at America Magazine, so Jesuit, you know, the main publication in America, so this is all, the coping is just getting very tiresome, of course, and I think uh, there's all these Zambian and African bishops and a few other bishops, you know, have really come out banning, you know, these in their archdiocese, so I think the issue with this is it really, I mean, don't you see the dem- Dimitri, that it demonstrates, you know, that Papist ecclesiology obviously is, I mean, that's the main, that's the reason everyone is coping, isn't so much because of you know, the the gay marriage thing is one thing. That's that, that ship has sailed. But now it's about, you know, the Pope is really infallible still, I swear, right?
1: Oh, 100%. It's, it really shows that, you know, papal and Roman Catholic ecclesiology throughout the centuries has not only evolved but become worse. Like, it's literally worsened over time. And the fact that individual Popes had so much authority to make these, you know... Hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Oh.
0: I think, I think the World War Now office landline is ringing. How does... How does anyone have this phone number? This is ridiculous. Let me see, the the caller ID says Louisiana. Let me me pick this up.
2: It's a real pleasure to be on today with y'all today, man. I I don't know if y'all know who I am, but uh, I'm the host of Reason and Theology. It's a, it's a Catholic podcast uh, that specializes on the Holy Father, Pope Francis, and explaining some of the really great decisions he's been making lately. And I, I just wanted to say hi to me, Michael Seraphim, Loftog, Lofton. So I just wanted to clarify a few things because I know, I, know, I know my schismatic Orthodox friends, they've been really jumping at the bit to critique the Holy Father. And unfortunately, they've been capping a little bit. So just let me straighten a few things out for real. So I'm going to introduce y'all to two words. I'm going to let my audience hear this. Nuance and distinctions, baby. All right, let's talk about it. So recently, the Pope, he been blessing the real relationship between the two gay men, not their union. The idea that the Pope is blessing unions is erroneous. And Cardinal Fernandez has been overwhelmingly clear, yo, that we ain't blessing no gay unions. Hell nah. And it can't be liturgical neither. What this is, and for real, I want y'all schismatics to listen because it's reason and theology time. This is just a blessing of the real relationship and the good aspects, like the friendship and stuff, not the bad aspects, like side of me. You feel me? Reason and Theology Live, Michael Lofdog, signing out. Also, I hate Christian Mario. He's a punk and he's always trying to imitate me and he can't do it for real.
0: Wow, well... I guess that well that just happened. So you you heard it first, folks. We had our we had our first live caller in World War Now and that that was something.
1: Wow. Yeah, I look I, I I appreciate naturally given our differences, but I still appreciate Mr. Lofton's um you know, his opinion. As a, as a Roman Catholic, more on the, of course, liberal progressive side. But yeah, he's really stated that, look, uh, Pope Francis has, in fact, uh, blessed the real relationship, apparently, of same-sex couples. But that's not really how the Catholic world sees it, is it, Conrad? I mean, I'm looking at Pope Francis and I'm seeing him, you know, essentially dismiss and banish uh, Bishop Strickland in the US from Texas. I'm seeing him do all kinds of, make very liberal moves across the board and suddenly. He's directly in a, in a document officially stating that you know giving his thousands of bishops and tens and hundreds of thousands of priests authority to essentially bless same-sex couples. I mean, how does the Roman Catholic Church even accept the fact that same-sex couples even exist, right? Because in the in the Orthodox Church, you know, this is just it's it's not only is it weird and adulterous, it's also just uh, it's also just open sodomy and. These couples are not even given a designation. Like the fact that you designate it as a same-sex couple means you are admitting that this couple can even exist, like factually, like in the real world. You're labeling it. I mean, this relationship is completely invalid. It's similar between, I mean, hypothetically, it's like the relationship between me and like, I don't know, a married woman or something. Like that's not a real relationship. That's just adultery, right? It's just the sin. Of the relation, or like a relationship between a man and a prostitute, that's you can't bless that. I'm sorry, it's just that unfortunately, uh you know, unfortunately, this is a wrong view of relationships between humans and between adults. And the Roman Catholic Church, I mean, seems to have embraced this degenerate view of it through Pope Francis, and a lot of people are in opposition now.
0: Oh, it's really, it's really tearing apart the whole Catholic world. And look, I, I want to say our Catholic friends were going hard on you guys these days. I know it's it's hard to hear, but look. We just had our first Catholic caller. We had Michael Lofton on, and I think we gave him a fair hearing, you know? So I think, um, you know, I think, again, it's not a laughing matter for you Catholics. I know you're taking it very seriously. But again, I see everybody posting, like, look, the the, the Archbishop of Kazakhstan has come out against it. Oh, look, the, the bishops of Malawi have come out against it. Look, you know, it's all these people, and it's like, look, I mean... Your ecclesiology isn't orthodox, frankly. Like, why should I care what some bishop says? His he exists at the discretion of the pope. The pope can, the pope can send his ass to Ketchikan, Alaska. Send him to the Antarctic Latin Church, wherever, the, whatever they've got set up down there. Whenever he wants, he could remove him. He can like it's 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 Francis's world. You're just living in it, man. And I think that. You know, I see all of them yearning effectively, and they don't, maybe they don't realize it. Maybe some of them do and are being obtuse. Like, I think Michael Lofton would be, of course, you know, thank you to Christian Mario for the, for the fantastic impression. I think, I think Michael Lofton should be flattered. You know, I think imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? So, come on, Michael, unblock Christian Mario. It's only fair. But I think the, uh, I see them yearning for an orthodox ecclesiology. That's the thing. When we post something a bishop says, It matters because that, just like you think the Pope is the successor to Peter, has the keys, we think of each bishop in their own territory in that exact same way. So, and when we see the consensus patrum, you know, become debated and bishops make certain statements, this is the synodal, you know, reality of the Holy Spirit working in the church, even without actual conferences, actual councils. And look, look at Vatican II, look at the synod of synodality that Rome has been perpetually calling. Is this something that we, we really want these days, and I think in many ways Orthodox ecclesiology is being you know kind of shown for all to see as as correct here. And so I definitely welcome especially these African you know bishops and communities as you know the Russian exarchate expands, as certain archdioceses of the Alexandrian Patriarchate expand. You know, come home, become Orthodox, please. I extend that of course to every other you know Latin priest, bishop, layperson in America, in the West, everywhere, of course. But I mean, it's time. I mean, it's clearly time. And I know we're not, no one's going to gloat, no one's going to rub your face in it. That's not what it's about. It's just about, you know, you're going to drive yourselves crazy justifying this stuff. And, you know, eventually there's going to, like, we see Archbishop Vigano effectively about to start an SSPX2. I mean, he seems, the only thing he hasn't done yet is ordain bishops and priests, which I'm sure the Pope wouldn't approve of. And that would be a whole nother, you know, Marcel Lefebvre situation. So y'all are virgin on all sorts of weird schisms, even in your own eyes. People are very much more sympathetic to the SSPX, which is in a form of pseudo schism, however much you want to deny it. So it's just see what's going on across the Bosphorus, as they say, see what's going on in Moscow, in the Third Rome. And I think you'll be great. You'll be you'll be grateful that you did. You know, I think that that's how that goes. But it really is a at least the people online like Michael Lofton that are going to be Pope's planning about this. It really is about how this exposes papist ecclesi- ecclesiology as wrong, especially if you know that. As many are saying that, well, the document doesn't say anything wrong. It, you know, it has bad intent. That seems to be kind of the trad cope line. But if that's true, I mean, that throws your whole ecclesiology out of whack.
1: Yeah, and like, let's be real here, right? Conservative Roman Catholics, this papacy that's in power now, and it, you know, you can say even since Vatican One, Vatican Two, exactly which, what, what has it produced that has been similar to maybe, I mean, your most glorious period, so-called, you know, during the Crusades, during the First, Second, Third Crusade, even, you know, up to the Fourth Crusade, which was essentially a horrific act against the Orthodox Church and against the Orthodox Romans and Greeks at Constantinople. I mean, we're not in those times anymore. Things have changed. And it seems that even the battle that Catholics had against revolution, the Freemasons, Napoleon, you know, the, the Catholic Church has been defeated. Right In terms of even worldly power and authority, the Vatican has been turned into this semi-closed-in structure, which, yes, has existed and persisted over the centuries and decades, but has lost, if not all authority, is at least subjugated in some regard by by these new Jesuits who are not conservative at all. And Pope Francis, being one of their primary leaders, seems to be moving the entire church structure into this liberal frame, which again is incredibly degenerate and negative given the fact given the influence that he has, like people don't realize the size of the Roman Catholic Church, despite all of its, you know, the fact that it's really not united and there's so many different teachings within the Roman Catholic Church, which it's not even like jurisdictionally different. You have people praying for St. Palamas and Saint Sergius of Radonezh and all kinds of weird stuff happening in the unit union section. You have in the Middle East various divisions, but just the size of it. You have over eight thousand bishops in the Roman Catholic Church all in all, right? In total Meanwhile, in the Orthodox Church, uh, we have close to 900 bishops at the moment, with the majority being in the Russian church as well as the Greek churches around the world. But just that size of bishops, the Pope has influence all, all, all over all of them, and he yet still puts out this major document which will throw the entire, you can say, the entire Western Christendom into disarray. And you know he's not afraid of doing that. So I think it's it's a big wake-up call. And it's just about time. It doesn't surprise myself and Conrad. It doesn't surprise many Christian commentators. The Russian Church has already outspoken out, and frankly, Russian theologians have already said, look, well, if the Pope's going to keep doing that, like the Roman Roman Catholics are going to be severely limited in their, in their missionary work allowed in Russia, because Russia has banned any promotion of LGBTQ values, which if the Roman Catholic Church through its bishops and you know those kind of forces do you know, push these ideas of same-sex couples in Russia and the new SMO zones, and even in Ukraine, the the Russian Church will be responding really strongly, and most likely will use the state of the Russian Federation to uphold some of its laws and ethics and morals. Because these things that the Roman Catholic Church seems to be pushing, at least its leadership under Pope Francis, is very immoral and degenerate. And yeah, it's it's funny because the union, uh, the head union metropolitan of Galicia and Vov, he's actually spoken out against this. So even, and he's mind you, quite. From a UNI perspective, he is a little bit, like, I want to say far right. He has supported various neo-Nazi movements in Ukraine since 2014. So he is very, like, I guess conservative in that sense from, like, a Teutonic crusader type uh, view, but yeah, we do see Catholic, as you mentioned, Catholic bishops. We've seen at least one or a few German bishops as well. Uh, those who aren't liberal, actually, well, speak it's even out. it's even
0: deeper than that. I mean, it's uh, Sviatoslav Shevchuk, the he's the patriarch, effectively of the of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. The people we talked about who were just banned in Zaporozhia, and he said that this is this is what I mean by it exposes Catholic ecclesiology. It says that uh, Fiducia supplicans, the document that priests supposedly use to bless homosexual so called couples. Uh, apparently has no legal status in the UGCC and thus will not be implemented. He says effectively that this is only relevant in the Latin Church. So what happened to, you know, total papal jurisdiction, papal superiority, papal infallibility? Like I didn't Dimitri, Dimitri, mean to after you read a list, you know, we had these German bishops, Malawi, Zambia go on, but like how is this not how does this not completely expose the game?
1: No, one hundred percent. Like again, it's this was this argument was used against us Orthodox for decades at this point, especially in online debates. Ever since the debate has moved into the internet sphere, it's been well. The papacy secures this this monolithic church structure. It right? everything. It is the pillar around which everything is built on. It is the foundation, the cornerstone, the rock, right? And everything stands on top of that. And there's this unity of jurisdiction, right? Despite differences, we're all united around the papacy and the Vatican. And at this point, the Vatican clearly puts out a document which nobody agrees with or at least like a large portion of christians around the world vehemently disagree with and yet they're still called to follow the pope and they're not following him so where is this unity which in the orthodox church we don't have this problem because we are all orthodox dogmatically theologically we all follow the nicene creed and we all have very similar catechisms which essentially do not differentiate at all basically it's so again our ecclesiology seems to work through these issues we don't you don't see us following you know uh, Archbishop El uh of, of the of, of Eastern United States and Gar Arch essentially make these weird proclamations and you know baptizing the two I mean we've seen these analogies where he's you know, baptizing the the two kids in Greece that was you know thrown down very strongly by the entire Orthodox community uh, baptizing the two kids belonging to the gay Greek couple it was just a very uh, controversial move that was made but the Orthodox Church responded correctly. And they completely, you know, banish that particular opinion. That's never going to happen again. And whenever Patriarch Bartholomew makes some cringe statement or says some really weird stuff, he gets criticized. And you know, we don't have to follow what he does because you know he simply doesn't have jurisdiction over the entire world, like Pope Francis. I think this really speaks a lot to the Roman Catholic Church structure and people should really think deeply about this this is not a time to be you know so called humility and you know it's not a time to be humble and to sort of meekly allow this to pass i think this is one of those incremental moves, which the Roman Catholic Church, under Pope Francis and other previous popes, all these ecumenist statements, like, well, I'm just going to say this right now, but the Roman Catholic Church has been one of the most pro-Zionist, pro-Judaizing structures that has has existed on earth in the 20th century. I don't, we don't need to make give all the examples, right, Conrad? But the the pro the statements that the you know there is the Jews didn't crucify Christ, things like that. This, this has come out of the mouths of popes. This is heresy, and it is just beyond anything that has happened, you know, centuries before and definitely has never happened in the Orthodox Church. So, again, we're speaking about Israel, Zelensky, all these power structures, the the bankers, the money power behind the world. The Roman Catholic Church, through its leaders, has actively participated in bringing these people to the forefront. So, uh, and and, and I don't mean all the various, you know, Roman Catholic laymen and people like that who, who actually... You know, conservative, and they want what's best for their families and their communities. I mean, these cardinals and the people in charge of the Vatican—this, this really, this black nobility that has ruled over this post-Renaissance papacy—I think it's just really negative, and it's time to wake up to that.
0: Yeah, again, all due respect to Michael Lofton and our Catholic listeners, but it really is like again, we're not—it's not a mockery thing, but the the Pope's blaming and the again, we say it's coping and these sort of things—the mental gymnastics—it becomes you know, it shows that the papacy is an idol. And I understand that there's a lot of tradition and a lot of these countries that are historically Catholic really have, you know, what you could consider a very genuine, you know, enculturated, you know, Christian tradition. And a lot of that stuff can be baptized into orthodoxy, of course. It's not that, again, there is a Western right. A few people have mentioned that, you know, perhaps the Western right needs to focus on explicitly being, you know, a you know something akin to a an eighth century you know Latin mass and whatnot and have that be the explicit focus and whatnot. I'm not a Western right expert, but I think that you know again, the restriction of the mass is going to be something that brings a lot of people towards orthodoxy. I don't know if this will be as well. hopefully it is. and perhaps I would see the greatest potential for that being in the second and third world in Africa and these other places that may have just really had enough and see especially with Russia demonstrating its ability to stand on a world stage, seeing that as a civilization and, of course, a church that, you know, stands by doctrine and is actually guided by the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I'm hopeful about that. But unless you have anything else to say about the, you know, papal Vatican City situation, you know, I mean, Shevchuk, the UGCC head, you know, the Ukrainian Greek, it's ironic because he's really close with Pope Francis, you know, they're really good friends, knew each other before he was the Pope and everything. And they've gotten much closer and Pope Francis obviously since as a big Vatican II supporter, he's a big unia supporter, a big, you know, Eastern Right supporter in that tolerant way, of course, that he is. And that's why again, we're gonna have an eye on twenty twenty five and see how that goes, because I mean, we know that the schismatics in Ukraine have been willing to soften on homosexuality to appease the the Western powers. So this is Ukraine is very much a it's kind of the battleground for this future potential union and a lot of these you know, look. I mean, it's it's even a battleground within the Catholic Church for this document and whatnot. So, it's uh, it's all very interesting, and we're gonna we're gonna keep tabs on it very closely. But, you know, I guess we'll have to talk about. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming the population, the Catholic population in Venezuela, Guyana, is relatively large. I don't know how to make this a smooth transition, but we've been covering that front for a while, and it was really looking like it was going to escalate. But it seems that we're getting a bit of a cool down for now. It's still definitely on the radar, but uh, the leaders of Venezuela and Guyana they met. A week, week and a half ago, I can't remember the exact dates, and they basically agreed to resolve the border dispute diplomatically. And I don't know if that's code for that Guyana is effectively willing to cede some territory or to uh, make a deal with them on some of these oil rights. But it seems that that has, you know, moment that that has not flared up as dramatically as it could. Although again, anything could change.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting because you know, in, it's the first time in one of these conflicts around the world where we saw, unlike, you know, the meeting of Zelensky and Putin, which simply has never taken place, or the meeting of, you know, a a leader of Hamas and Netanyahu, or even in Western Africa, like, you know, the oppositionary leader with one of the uh, supporters of the West African coups, we see uh, President Maduro and President Ali of uh, Guyana actually meet in person, shake hands and actually make an agreement that, look, there won't be a, a there won't be a resolution free force in this particular issue. And this happened like close to a week ago now, but at this point it looks like they're actually willing to make concessions. Guyana, which, you know, naturally is the current holder of most of this rainforest territory, which is incredibly rich in resources. We spoke about that. It's like literally the size of Greece or the size of Ireland. It's a giant territory, which has probably more natural resources than all of Greece combined, right? Despite the sea zones of Greece being quite uh, oil and gas rich. But again, it's like this rich territory, the world, or at least the world power is standing behind Guyana and even the uh, the Venezuelan people, which who have a very strong military. It's very, of course, it's a very Soviet-esque type military, very North Korea type, you know, tech, not the most technologically modern, but they do have an army willing to fight for their country in the hundreds of thousands of troops. So, I mean, that's worth something. And at this point, they've made their statement that they're willing to go into Guyana in order to disrupt some of this territory and to, you know, as per the referendum, take over. But at this point, it looks like Guyana will most likely in the coming year, I think there'll be some contracts written up and certain territory will be ceded or at least leased probably temporarily to Venezuela. I think that's the conclusion they're coming to. Again, this is all up in the air hypothetically, but at this point, we're not looking at a war between Guyana and, you know, over this Essequibo region between Guyana and Venezuela, which I think is a positive for world peace, right? (laughs) <laughs> strictly speaking. But again, for the globalists, I think the reason why this and we know there's a lot of money behind this, right? Oil companies, trans corporate trans international corporations, as well as probably the US. I mean, this is the US's backyard. South America has always been the US's like plaything. It has manipulated South American countries for decades now, at least since the World War II. It has been when the US has tested some of its special forces, manipulation of regimes, things like that. So the US definitely has still a very stronghold over South American countries. And I think the US is strictly Made the statement, look, we don't want any wars in South America, period, before this next coming election. Right. So I think that's that's the stance at the moment. So this piece, again, may be temporary, but at least it will stand for the time being. And I think it's mostly in the US's favor, I think, Conrad, given the fact that, look, if there will be concessions, and yeah, sure, maybe some money will, you know, money will be lost, let's just say on the globalist Western US side, but they're happy without a full-on war occurring between Venezuela, because Venezuela, there's a high potential of Venezuela becoming this new Cuba of the 1960s and receiving support from these future BRICS countries, which, again, as the multipolar world rises, you know, these countries will be providing military aid, military future technology to countries like Venezuela. So the U.S., I think, really wants wants this conflict to die down, and it has achieved this end.
0: Well, yeah, the U.S. is going to need the energy down there and whatnot, as, of course, it seems the rest of Asia and Eurasia is... No longer playing ball on their petrodollar game and everything, which, you know, the whole OPEC thing is interesting and we'll get into that. But as the Esekibo thing dies down, we see other fronts, you know, escalating. Of course, Sudan, it seems that the Russian-backed forces have really taken initiative and uh, the, rapid response, the rapid response forces, I think is what they're called. They're, you know, the pro-Russian military force that you know, is fighting against the other government in Sudan, and they've made a lot of rapid gains recently. You know, that's increased. Of course, Russia has seen recruitment, actually, for their, I guess, Wagner and military, open military operations at this point in the Sahel region. Of course, the last French troops left Niger, so these places, Burkina Faso, Niger, Mali, are fully within the Russian sphere of influence in that regard. And then, of course, we see China-Taiwan, and as, as we speak, you know, China has uh warships headed towards Taiwan has aircraft, you know, crossing the line, you know, of the Taiwan Straits and, you know, getting around the island. So then they're just continuing to, you know, press and look and probe and run tests, I'm sure, and run war games and think about it. And they're switching up their tariff strategies and preparing, you know, for the potential economic blockades that would come from all of this and dealing with the loss of the U.S. market and all sorts of things like that, which, again, we're always watching China-Taiwan as the other main tinderbox that could always go hot. but as far as anything else is concerned, Dimitri, I don't know if there's any stories that, that we've missed or that you think we need to add. It was a good thing you mentioned the the Georgia thing that was big. So it was just one of those things that kind of got lost in the news, especially with, you know, Finland rearming on the border and everything like that. But yeah, the Houthis just, you know, the main story this week. And that's uh, the Red Sea is just, you know, for a while it was the Black Sea and now it's really the Red Sea. And, you know, the Babel Mendeb, you know, I, again, hats off to the Houthis. They've really, like Dugan said, they've really, you know, if it wasn't for them, the Islamic world would be hanging its head in shame.
1: Yeah, I think it, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes into this Red Sea Operation Prosperity Guardian situation. I mean, for one, for us Orthodox Christians, it is very cringe and bizarre that we have Orthodox Christian Greek sailors actually participating in this charade. You know, risking their lives in support of Zionist Israel. You know the the Greek warship present at the moment, and the Greek navy should be focusing on other things. For example, you know maybe even practicing maneuvers and in the future eschatological wars, which will definitely occur in the region. Like we, you know, we speak about all of that, but wasting resources, potentially Greek lives. What if this Greek ship is taken down by the Houthis? I mean, that'll be what do you would we like Orthodox Christian blood to be spilled in the Red Sea? I mean, probably not. Like this is this is just really negative. I think it's negative PR. For Greece, because Greece, again, it's Greece is placating itself as a member of like this, as this like Western coalition partner with the US against, you know, against Muslims. I don't think this is what Greece needs. Greece, you know, has already a lot of tension points with Islamic Turkey. And, you know, Turkey, again, not being as Turkey is still very aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood. So, again, it does a lot of really, you know, a lot of issues which this particular knot could undo. And let's just, uh, Let's just not forget about, like, this reminds me of, like, an old Russian historian, Russian Orthodox historian, Vladimir Makhnach, passed away in 2009, but in the early 90s, he was giving a lecture during the during the US bombing of Yugoslavia, right, and Serbia especially. So during that bombing, the US uh, had, like, its navy in the Adriatic Sea, and he was just saying, what if one of the Serbs actually shot a missile at, you know, what if the Serbs organized some attack on one of these US navy ships? He's saying Vladimir Makhnach was like, well, this would end the entire war because, again, if one of these ships goes down, hundreds of sailors will die, right? And, and there's hundreds of American sailors and all their families in the US. And what will they call for? Probably not war. They'll probably march on the White House, right? They'll be like, why are we participating in this operation? Well, Lemire Makhnach was saying, look, all you need to do is take out one of these American ships. He's calling on the Serbians to do that. And then the entire war will end because the US is not in a in a state that can afford hundreds of its dead its dead men and boys at sea somewhere across the, you know, for, for various political gain, like which are not really defined on the Clinton administration. And today, Joe Biden has even a worse position than Bill Clinton had back in the day. I mean, he's just completely, you know, just really obscure why the US is doing this in the Red Sea, you know, especially in support of Israel. It just doesn't make sense to the regular people. I think, again, you know, we spoke about provocations, Conrad, about, you know, the two, US's Eisenhower and the other aircraft carry on in the Mediterranean. This is even more risky. We have a US, uh, an aircraft carrier with thousands of crewmen actually participating very close to hostile territory, again, could there be a provocation like a 9-11 type event? Could the USS Carney, which we spoke about, you know, shooting down Houthi missiles, could it be taken down by, you know, you know, we've seen the Ukrainians take down the uh, Russian Moskva ship, right? So we've seen Ukrainian tech actually take out the flagship of the Black Sea before. We've seen ships actually sink in this in the last two years, like proper military battleships. Could the Houthis take down one of the US ships and kill a bunch of American boys and, and guys and sailors like this will be really unfortunate but a provocation of that level could take place and i think that's we should just keep our eyes peeled just very negative consequences could arise from this and i think the globalist leaderships and those in charge of the u.s navy those patriots should be paying very close attention do not let your american navy you know do not let your navy be subjugated to this swamp control of the deep you know, military deep state running the you know running the u.s government i think it's just the really dire what could take place
0: I mean, the U.S. Navy shouldn't be, you know, the the war dog, you know, the 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 sea monster force of world Jewry, but alas, here we are. And unfortunately, I mean, Israel said, we're going to take action on the Houthis if the U.S. doesn't do something. And then a week later, the U.S. launches Operation Prosperity Guardian. And look, it makes sense that in theory, there's this need to unclog the Bab mandeb and the Suez Canal and free up trade and shipping. The answer to that is to call off Israel and make them <laughs> stop bombing Gaza, not try to piece together some coalition of the willing and be forced to include Seychelles on the document. I mean, again, you got Norway, Denmark on there, like, again, France, Italy, they're out. Only Greece and UK even have ships to send, and Australia sent 11 guys, and you got Seychelles on there. So again, this is just it just shows you that truly the unipolar moment is over, and the U.S. Thalosocratic, you know, world navy that is now just you know an attack dog for world Jewry is no has been somewhat defanged, and you have to thank though the, the Yemenese Houthis. They really, yeah, like Dugan said, you know, they've really they've really shown up to the task. But you know, I think we're about reaching the end here. Again, we you know when it comes to the papacy stuff. People people like to cite the example of the Elpidophoros, you know, baptizing the child of the gay couple. And again, he got condemned by the entire church, even Greece and the Ecumenical Patriarch condemned him. The Greek government condemned him. And here we now see even one of the more, quote-unquote, liberal jurisdictions of orthodoxy fully condemning. I mean, the Greek church is against civil unions as a principle because they believe only Christian marriage is legitimate, and they're obviously against this gay marriage and gay adoption stuff. And of course, we'll see the Greek government. You know, the Greek government is literally just a debt slave to the EU and the U.S. So they do what they need to do. That's why they send ships for Israel. That's why they legalize gay marriage. You know, they should just get out of the EU. That's one of the main things. And since it's, it's, it's a terrible, that Georgia is going in as well. But you know, with all of that, thank you so much for listening. Again, be sure to check out that recent Ether Hour. We're going to have another episode coming up. It's not a Q and A. It's going to be about a hard-hitting topic. We're going to get into some stuff. So be prepared for that. Be prepared for some amazing guests in the future. It's really getting great, the people that we have lined up. So stay tuned for that. But it'll make that easier if you support us on the paywall. So worldwarnow.co, that's where you can support us. That's how you can help us out, get behind, listen to all the Ether Hour episodes. It's really great. Follow me on Twitter at GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri on Twitter at OCanonist. The past few days, Elon has put the jets on for him. He's had some crazy viral posts been pretty amazing on some pretty interesting topics. But obviously follow World War Now underscore on Twitter on X. That's where we can that we've been doing really well on there as well. Of course World War Now Telly on Telegram. Follow us on Rumble and YouTube, World War Now. Subscribe to us on YouTube, watch the YouTube videos. We want to be getting a thousand views per average on YouTube. We know most people listen on Substack, but you know, get those views up, you know, it helps us out. Leave a comment. Hopefully we'll do some more live streams on there in the future. But yeah, with all of that, Dimitri, I'll let you send us off
1: thank you guys for the support, and you know we appreciate all of your all of your help throughout the year. Hopefully, this won't be the last episode we released this year, so there should be one or two more. So stay tuned. And twenty twenty three has been amazing. I just want to thank everybody who has supported us throughout it. It's been a difficult year. I think there's been various stresses. Naturally, it depends on where you live. I think everybody has felt some of that. Post-COVID um, geopolitical tension. You know, even if you're, even if this is your only news source, I think you've kind of gathered from the people around that, in fact, the world is getting a little bit, a little bit warmer in terms of uh, moving towards some hot. Fiery conflict, unfortunately, for us, and and here we are, although covering it from an Orthodox perspective, because I think that's what that's what's important, and that wasn't given to us, unfortunately, during prior conflicts like the Iraq War. There wasn't really any Orthodox media covering it from from this you know, Christian perspective. The internet has given us this opportunity that we can cover it and judge these situations from at least an Orthodox Christian background, which is, I think, why this show has, which is, which speaks to its success and speaks to the fact that it's popular amongst some of the, the, the most outspoken English-speaking Orthodox Christians on the internet today. And um, I think me and Conrad have given our best try this year, and hopefully next year we'll work on some of the feedback that you guys have given us. And we're looking forward to another year of news and giving you guys uh, all the best information um, at, you know, at the soonest and nearest convenience. So let's, uh, let's look forward to the next year.
0: Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, Christ the Savior is born.